Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Crucial Conversations. I'm Peter. And I'm Kevin. And as Kevin just told me before we hit live, it is clearly apparent that we have no idea what we're doing with this podcast. And we're going to do it anyways. Here we go. (laughs) All right. So, Kevin, we're going to start off with a statement that you made that I wrote down with a big word in it that I'm not entirely sure I understand. But if you're just joining us, this is our second episode in our series on Christology that we started last episode. I almost said last week, but I was on vacation. Yeah. So it's been like two weeks since we've released an episode. Uh, This episode on Christology, series on Christology. Now, Kevin, let me see if I got this right. The journey to talk about Jesus is an apophatic journey. Yeah, that's true. What did I just say? You said journey twice in the same sentence. Well, okay, that's not what I meant. (laughs) Yeah. You said apophatic. Yeah, I don't know that word. You said that right on purpose. We used a different word earlier that I do know. But I don't know that word. So Which word did we use that you do know? I think we said negative. Yeah, negative. Yeah. So apophasis is the things that we don't know or, or describing a thing by the things that they aren't. Oh. So when you when you endeavor to do apophatic theology, you really spend your time saying, no, it's not that. Okay. So um, as we were discussing things earlier today, one of the things that you learn as you study Christology is that the church's language to do that is used to describe Christology and the, the correct biblical teaching of Christology is really a series of the church saying, no, not that. <laughs> and one of the reasons is because this is an issue in which the texts that are supposed to be read are not really the problem. It's not like the Orthodox, and let's define that term as well. Orthodox means what? Right. Yeah, basically in this context means <laughs> this is what the, the Christian church traditionally teaches. Yeah. Right? So um, there is a body of doctrine that is considered generally right by the church, and that's kind of Orthodox theology. And there's a bunch of teachings that are considered wrong by the church, and that's called heresy mm-hmm. or false teaching or lies. Right. So what we would like to do as Christians is to make sure that when we speak, we are speaking things that are true, especially when we speak about God. Yeah. So orthodox theology is the the words that we speak about God that are correct, according to the church and the way the church has historically read scripture and the rule of faith. And for us as Lutherans, um, we look to the Book of Concord as the book that kind of says, this is how the church teaches the doctrines Mm -hmm. of the church, right? So in the Book of Concord, we have recorded confessions where we make positive statements about what we we do believe, but also within those confessions, we have negative statements saying, now when we say this, we don't mean that. Yeah, it's the reject and condemn statements. Exactly. Yeah. And in the formula of Concord, then at the end of the Book of Concord is a, is a whole writing that basically says, here are the controversies that are facing our church in the realm of theology. And here are the things that we are affirming, and here are the things that we're rejecting. And that's why in whatever controversy is discussing, we come to this conclusion. Now, I got to say, as a Lutheran, 
I'm totally okay with this apophatic approach to things because especially when I first became a Lutheran, I spent a lot of time on the internet telling everybody else how it was not that. Right. How they were yeah. wrong. No, it's not that. <laughs> no, that's not what Bible says. Nope, that's not what it says. Nope, that's not what it's what it teaches. So um, as we're talking through this, because another way of talking about this is all, all theology is negative theology. Mm-hmm. I think we've used that phrase maybe once or twice on the show. It's been a long time since we've since we've mentioned it, but right. that's the same way of it's another way of saying apophatic right journey. So <laughs> what happens is we we have the scriptures that are the inspired and inerrant and infallible word of God. And so when you discuss Christian theology, we're really not diving into the question of what scriptures do we read, that's a that's a different discussion. Mm-hmm. But when we discuss things like Christology, we're saying from the inspired text of the Old and New Testament, as we've received them as the church, right? So mm-hmm. that's the Bible, basically for shorthand, that's the Bible that you know. Right. From those texts, what does the Bible teach about Jesus? And what happens is it becomes very clear that in the scriptures, Jesus is clearly a human being, who is described as God. Right. And and it's this just, we've talked about before. Yeah, and this yep. is this is kind of what we talked about last week and we talked about in our Athanasian Creed episodes. Mm-hmm. So so my point is no one's saying, hey, let's read this text over here that no one's ever thought about, and then we get some weird Christology from it. <laughs> no, everyone's reading the same text about Jesus. Or I saying, found a new verse right, that says that Jesus is God, or a new verse that said he isn't God that nobody's ever looked at before right. yeah. to, to say that. I've come up with a new one. Right. See, that's not going to happen. Yeah. So what this really comes down to then is, okay, there are these texts before us that everyone's reading, but some people are coming with ideas of Jesus that are not in accordance with what the church has taught mm-hmm. and how they've interpreted this text. And so the church ends up saying, no, it's not that. And they say, well, what is it? And they go, well, see, it's it's basically that Jesus is one person with two natures. And they say, well, define that narrowly. And they go, well, okay, <laughs> this is hard. They say, so you mean it's like his two natures are like two boards that are glued together and you can pull them apart? And they go, no. No, it's not that. That's not it. <laughs> it's like, oh, so it's like two natures that you kind of mush together. They're so they, mixed up together so you mixed can't up, even tell you can't the tell difference. anymore. And there's kind of really a new nature, kind of. And we go, no, that's not it. They say, okay, so what really happens is, like, the mind of Christ is the Logos, but the rest of him is human. And we go, no, (laughs) that's not it either, right? Yeah. They say, oh, 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 I got it. So Jesus is actually God. He just looks human. Right. Or, Or he started off as human, and then at some point, God turned him into God. Right. And and yeah. and the church says, "Wow, good try. Um, <laughs> thanks for playing." But no, that's not actually what we're saying. And, and the and point that's apathetic theology is when you can you continue to say, "No, that's not it." This is actually one of the reasons reading scripture as a whole is so critical and so important to be well read in your Bible and not just cherry picking and pretexting right. here and there because you take any one verse on its own and you can twist it in these different ways to come up with these weird things. So um, I want to take us back just to a comment you made about how nobody's 
reading new verses and coming up with new things. And I want to be clear about what we mean by that, because I know in my own experience, as well, at any point in my theological journey, whether I was Lutheran or not, there are plenty of times where I can remember thinking, I don't think I've ever seen that verse before. Right. What does this mean? And then taking that and having like a new revelation or a new idea to me mm-hmm. of, okay, well, I never read that verse before. Now that I have, what does this mean? That's not what we're talking about. Right. You, you may have individual friends or people you meet who have never read right. that verse before, who suddenly it changes the way they see mm-hmm. everything because they'd never seen that verse before. What we're talking about is in the history of the church, in the history of Christianity, as you look at denominations that currently exist and those that have always, you know, always been around or have mm-hmm. popped up, there is nothing new under the sun. Right. The, the, there is no new way of looking at a verse that nobody's ever looked at in that way before. So you're not going to walk up to an historian and say, "Hey, have you seen John one fourteen? And we're like, <laughs> "What? <laughs> I didn't know that was there." No, they, they're reading the same text. Right. That's the point we're making, is that Christology is not saying, hey, guys, I think you've ignored this passage. Let us let me show you this. Bring it'll, that into the fold, and right, suddenly you'll be orthodox. solve everything. Yeah. That's not the problem. The problem is they've read all these texts, but they're interpreting them differently than the church does. So when you talk about Christology, it's always kind of frustratingly <laughs> an exercise in... Knowing the biblical text, first of all, that's the most important thing, is that you do know the biblical text. Where does it talk about Jesus in these ways? Why is the church wrestling with these issues? Why does the church use the vocabulary it does? But that's the next part, then, is, okay, how has the church historically talked about this? Because what happens is when you confess Christ to somebody else, you're using words. Mm -hmm. And those words make a difference in which words you use and how you use those words. And sure, you can make up a new vocabulary for Christology, but pretty soon, you're going to find yourself in a place where you're trying to explain what you mean by Jesus, and the church has already solved all the problems you're going to run into. <laughs> and so what we want to do is learn to use the words that the church has found most useful in her history to describe these truths. It eventually, we'll get to Chemnitz in this series, or... Uh... What was it Uncle Marty? Is that Marty what we, is how he talked yeah, about Yeah, our, our buddy Marty. I'm sorry We've about that, We've got a whole guys. bunch of people like, Marty, out. how I'm, dare you? I have a whole podcast about the eternal reality of Jesus, and people are upset that I called him Marty. <laughs> well, I just called him Uncle Marty, so yeah, what does that that's mean? That's usually now? Luther. That's how I usually refer to Luther. <laughs> oh, Luther. Uncle I thought he's Papa yeah. Marty. No, no Anyways, I, I okay. don't have such a But opinion. he wrote this book that we will eventually discuss at some point in the series, The Two Natures of Christ. In Christ. See? Yeah. See? In Christ. That's exactly the point I was making right there. That one single word yep. actually matters. Right. And it actually makes a difference. And using the different one mm-hmm. actually has you saying something else about Jesus. Or it can. It, or, and well, let's yeah. be clear about that. Is these aren't magical words. Right. But what happens is when you use a word that isn't the one that Orthodox theologians usually use, you kind of go... Why are you using that word? Mm-hmm. And that's, again, that's where the discussion comes in, is that now you're into apophatic theology. Like, you're, are you saying that? No, I'm not saying that. Oh, good, because usually when you use that word, you're saying that, right? <laughs> and they go, well, I didn't mean to say when that. When other people use that word, they mean that. Yeah, yeah. In the history of the church, when people say that word, 
we're going down a path that we don't want to go down. Yeah. And that's kind of when you go back to our Athanasian Creed episode or the two episodes we did, mm-hmm. we talked about this, that there are certain words that the creed uses and then the creed has to spend a lot of time defining what it means by those words and what it doesn't mean by those words. Yeah. And that's important because when God is one substance and three persons, you have to understand what the word substance and persons means in that context of talking about God, because those words are not reserved for just talking about God. They're words that you use in philosophy and other avenues of study. And so the creed actually says, now when we mean this, or when we say this, this is what we mean. Mm -hmm. And this is what we don't mean, (laughs) which is why the Athanasian creed sounds like it's going in circles because it's always saying we mean this, but we don't mean that. Okay. So I thought we'd get to scripture first. We will. But since you brought it up, I'm going to bring this up now. Okay. Philosophy and theology. Yeah. We're going to go to scripture first. <laughs> well, so, so real quickly, and we are going to do an episode on this at but some point. I didn't even point. ask my question yet. I know. Just go ahead and ask it. <laughs> Just because you know my question doesn't mean listeners. Uh, there, there is a point when you cross the line from one into the other, you just did. I mean, yeah. you said these terms are philosophical terms, but this, 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 we can get into really muddy waters when we're doing a podcast or having a conversation about theology, and I'm using words that aren't in the Bible, and then I say, well, this is a philosophical term. Okay. I could have some like huge red flags that are going up now. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't want philosophy. Just give me the Bible. Right. But that, that's not what we're trying to do here. So I think the first thing we need to make clear is saying that this is a philosophical term doesn't then mean this is a bad term. This is a term to be avoided. This is a right inaccurate term. We can say it's not a biblical term. Right. And that's fine. Which is fine, but then that also scares me. It's like, well, if it's not biblical, why are we talking about it? Why are we applying it? So Because the word cheese sandwich walk, is not in the Bible. That's walk really me, why. Walk me through this, Kevin. Yeah. Um, so, so this is a classic charge against theology in general, is that, well, you're, you're talking about God using the word Trinity. The word Trinity isn't in the Bible, so it's not a biblical term. Therefore, your theology isn't biblical. Right. And, and it almost sounds like, ooh, uh-oh. But if you think about it, like that doesn't make any sense. There are a lot of words that aren't in the Bible that we use every day. And the word Trinity, like a lot of words you're going to use in Christology, like the word Christology or yeah. even theology. <laughs> the very word we're using for they're this not series. In the series. They're not in the Bible. They're not biblical words. And biblical words meaning found in the text of the scriptures. However, they are biblical words, meaning they reflect the teaching of scripture. And this is the terms the church has come up with. So we don't have to say every single time you mention God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we don't have to say, now what I mean is one substance of three persons. You can't divide the substance or confuse the person. So it was one substance of God and the the person of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, instead of saying all that, I look at you and I say the Trinity. Okay. And the point is... The church teaches you that when you hear the word the Trinity, your brain is going, oh, you mean there's one God with three persons. Yeah. We properly call that essence God, and we properly call those persons Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Guess what? The second person is the one who was incarnate and died for you. 
His name is Jesus. That Jesus is one person with two natures. See, and so what happens is, instead of saying that every single time we talk, and this is how language works, by the way, (laughs) instead of saying that every time we talk, we come with words that summarize all that. So I can actually look at you and I can say, we are creedal Christians. And because you are a person who confesses the three economical creeds, the Nicene ah, Creed, the are. Apostles' Creed, yeah. and the Athanasian Creed, you, you know what I mean. Yeah. I don't have to then go recite the entire creed and explain what that <laughs> what they all mean, right? So it's, and I don't mean well, this actually, in a, I'm the three ecumenical creeds plus no creed but Christ. Exactly. So I have four that I subscribe to. Wait a minute. <laughs> so what, what really happens with these terms that aren't in the Bible is, is that these are the terms that the church has literally come together and decided to use mm-hmm. to communicate truths that the scriptures teach. Now, talking about the church coming together and deciding, there is a term that the church came together and decided apply to applied to us Lutherans that doesn't actually apply to us and might be a good example of philosophical language that is not biblical that we would actually reject— on the basis of the church of the Bible not actually teaching it, um, that word is consubstantiation. Yeah. <laughs> so if if you're new to Lutheran theology, or you hang around Lutherans a lot, you might have actually heard people describing, well, there's different views on the Lord's Supper. Right. And Catholics they believe in transubstantiation that these things actually turn into the body and blood of Christ. And I'm bringing this up because it's Christology. We're talking Lord's Supper. That's Christology. Right. So Christology. this this works here. Um, transubstantiation, where the the wine and the bread actually turn into the body and blood of Christ. Somehow they still look like wine and bread. There's a philosophical answer, accidents and substance. substance. Yeah. Philosophical terms to describe that. But the belief is, look, they, they actually are the body and blood now. And that's all they are. I think. Think if you're a Roman Catholic, feel free to correct me on that if I got that wrong. Right. Um, but that's the basic. And then on the other side, the other end of that spectrum, you have look. This is just a symbolic memorial. It's it's symbolism. It's it's for the remembrance. They don't actually do anything. The elements don't actually become anything else. They remain bread and wine or grape juice, most commonly in that tradition. And that's it. There's nothing else. And then they meet us Lutherans, and they're like, whoa. You, what did you do? You're in the middle somehow. Because right. you say it's still bread and wine, but you say it's also the body and blood. Well, the term we have for that is consubstantiation, which we reject mm-hmm. that term and that definition, not because, well, no, that's not an accurate view of what we believe. The philosophical explanation of what happens which is what consubstantiation is. It's a philosophical explanation of what happens to the elements. We reject that because Scripture does not describe what happens and how that happens and that process in those, really at all, but definitely not in those terms. It just says, look, here it is. So we, we, we're going way far afield of Christology at this point. But... <laughs> That's the body and blood of Christ. But so hang we're not on too here, people. Away. We will get back to the Bible really quick. We're not too far. Glee. So what what really ends up happening in all these discussions is that we are trying to find words that people understand to describe what the scriptures teach 
in various places. Mm -hmm. And of course, the best thing is to go read the Bible. But the problem is people read the Bible with different presuppositions, different philosophical ideas in their minds, different experiences, different 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 experiences they bring to the text. And so they say, oh, you you believe God is present in the Lord's Supper? And I go, yeah. And they go, me too. And I say, great. Then I say, yeah, I believe that the bread and wine have been transformed into the body and blood of Christ. And I go, whoa, <laughs> that's not what I believe. That's different. That's different than what I mean. Yeah. And they say, well, what do you mean? And I say, well, I believe in the real presence. Now, some people say, that's nice. We all believe in the real presence of Jesus. Of course, <laughs> he's really present with us. And I go, no, 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 that's a technical term. Yeah. Right? Real presence, capital R, capital P, is a technical term to describe the Lutheran theology of the Lord's Supper, as opposed to transubstantiation, which is a technical term to describe the Roman Catholic view. And and that's why these terms are important, because you actually do need to communicate what do you believe about this. Mm-hmm. And consubstantiation, like you said, is actually kind of a misunderstanding of the Lutheran view there are teachings of consubstantiation in the history of the church, but again, it's it's really trying to put too fine a point on how the Lord's Supper is the body and blood of Christ yeah. in with another bread and wine. And it's too fine a point because Scripture doesn't right. put that fine a point on it. goes beyond what Scripture says, yeah. which goes back to the whole Christology discussion with apophatic approach to Christology, is that we don't go beyond Scripture. But we clearly identify when someone does go beyond Scripture or contradicts Scripture. Mm -hmm. And that's the goal, is that we say, we want to make sure that the words we use to confess who Jesus is are words that are accurately reflecting the teachings of Holy Scripture. Who does Scripture say Jesus is? That's the question for us. Not who do I want him to be, or what's a cool way to talk about him, or what's the most mysterious way to do this, or even... What's a new way to talk about him that nobody's ever done before, but it'll finally help it explain it. Or even, and this is probably the most tempting one, what makes sense to me when I think about Jesus? Mm. How, How can I make Jesus make sense in my brain, or in my life, or in my situation? And see, that that could even be a pious desire. I want to know Jesus better. Yeah. I want to feel closer to Jesus. I want Jesus more in my life. And so then we go down the path of, well, I read the Bible, and to me, Jesus sounds like he's, you know, he, he's really God. He looks like a guy, but he's really God underneath. And so, you know, like... When he dies on the cross, the God part of him just kind of departs, and what we have is a human suffering. Yeah, because he gives up his spirit. He gives you up his you spirit. hear him say it right there. And, and, yeah. and I go, that's great that you want Jesus like that, but that's not who he is. Like, that's not correct. Mm. And so throughout the history of the church, what we do is we, we want to make sure that when we are speaking words about Jesus, whether they're positive words about who he is or, or words about who that we're correcting an error and who he's not, that that's all rooted in text of scripture, not individualistically, but as a body. Yeah. Who does the whole body of scripture teach us that Jesus is? And that's the amazing thing when you dig into this. And and we've spent 25 minutes not doing that, but we're going <laughs> I was gonna to say, so we've got we three verses. Let's yeah. get to the three that we have. For well, at least two of them. Okay. So, so this is what I encourage our listeners to do. Even if it means turning off our podcast right now and doing it, Read the Bible and 
listen when Paul and John, just, just do those two authors right now. Just read the, the letters of Paul, right? Romans through Philemon and the book of John. And just see who they think Jesus is. Mm-hmm. Like, who do they think this Jesus guy is? It, And that's kind of where the church starts all of this, is who do the biblical writers think that Jesus is? Who do they confess him to be? Mm-hmm. And that's who we want to confess him to be. Yeah. Because that's the word of God. So when Paul says it, we want to be in line with Paul. When John says it, we want to be in line with John. When Moses says it, we want to be in line with Moses. Right? And, and the hard thing is... Sometimes they say things that are difficult to reconcile with each other. Yeah. And that's actually where this, where Christology, it's not that Christology and understanding it is a moving target. Nope. It's that we are. Yeah, exactly. We're constantly moving around from where we're standing, trying to get a grasp on this. And we're the ones who keep missing the mark. So as we go through this, I want you guys to understand this, the, the mushiness that comes from this isn't because... God's word is intentionally mushy. No, it's clear. It we're actually the ones who are yeah. mushy. Our language mm-hmm. is mushy, and yet God uses language right. to convert us. <laughs> um, our communication is mushy, and yet God uses that same communication to convert us and keep us in the faith. So mm-hmm. even as we recognize the limitations of our own communication, our own language, at the same time we say, and yet. This is what God has given us. And so right. you can't just throw it out. Nope. <laughs> and and yeah, we really got to the passages. Yeah. So let's just let's just go right to um, one of the the passages, and, and these are kind of representative passages. We're yeah. not gonna exhaust the list. We're just gonna read representative passages. So you'll find passages like these in the New Testament. Go to First Corinthians chapter two, verse eight. First Corinthians, so that's one of the letters of Paul. Right, and the letters of Paul in an order of length from longest to shortest, with the exceptions being the seconds. They stuck those right after the first, otherwise we'd be lost. Right. <laughs> so First Corinthians is right after Romans, so it's the second longest book of Paul. Isn't that fun? Yay! So First Corinthians, that was all giving you time to get there. First um, Corinthians chapter two, verse eight, and it says this. This is from the ESV, so all copyrights are in place or whatever. <laughs> None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That is a huge Christological passage. Yeah. Now, slow down and just read the last clause of that verse. Crucified the Lord of glory? Yeah. So they killed God. Right. So how can you kill God? By by definition, you you can't. He's eternal. Right. It's not possible. Yeah. So the Lord of glory, Lord and glory are both very important Old Testament terms to describe Yahweh. As a matter of fact, Lord is the Greek translation that is most commonly used to translate the word Yahweh. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Kyrios, Lord in Greek, is the word to commun- to translate Yahweh when they translated the Old Testament into Greek. So now we have Lord and glory. Remember, glory is the presence of the Lord in the tabernacle. That's this whole idea of glory. When when God shows up in the Old Testament, they they often describe his presence as his glory. They see his glory, his oh, glory yeah. overshadows them, yep. his glory is in the cloud. The glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord. Them. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. Okay. 
Um, so now all of a sudden we have Paul saying the Lord of glory. That's Yahweh. That's the God of God and Lord of Lords, right? Paul, a Pharisee. Paul, a Jewish <laughs> Pharisee who believes in monotheism, only one God, and believes that the God of the Old Testament is that one God. He's mm-hmm. now saying that that Lord of glory was crucified. And that he was crucified by men. Right. Rulers of this age managed to do this. So this is, this is just basic philosophical questioning. Can God die? And as I always tell people, when you're applying for the job of God, <laughs> that's on the list of things you have to check, is are you immortal? If you aren't, you don't even get through the first round of interviews. Yeah, you're right. You're, you're just right you're out. out. So one of the qualifications for God is that he's immortal. He cannot die. And yet here Paul is saying God was crucified. Yeah, not only did he die, we humans managed to kill him. Yeah, and so then all of a sudden <laughs> God is subject to the actions of men. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why this passage is such a big Christological passage, because this is one of the things, now this is another big word, it's not a philosophical word, it's just a fun word, juxtaposition, right? When you put two things slammed next to each other, you juxtapose them. And what's really fun is two things that don't make any sense together, <laughs> juxtaposed. That's when you you catch your reader off guard and you go, whoa, I wasn't expecting that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what these Christological passages do, is they'll take a quality of God and put it next to a, a human quality and say, Jesus did that, or that was done to Jesus. So basically what why this matters is because if you are taking... You're you're in a debate. You're mm-hmm. in a conversation with somebody who has a different theological perspective than you. They look at this and say, "Okay, see, God was killed. Mm-hmm. Therefore, he couldn't have actually been God. This Jesus guy was maybe human up until this point, and that's why he was able to be killed. And then when he was resurrected, right, he actually became God at that point. God raised him from the dead because we can go find a verse that says God raised Jesus from the dead." Okay, and then after that, he's doing these miracles, walking through walls. Clearly, he's divine at that point. So Clearly. at this point, he's still his human self, and maybe right. he's got this indwelling of power, but he's primarily human because, look, he died. Well, after his resurrection, now God has made him fully divine. He's brought into the fold. Reading the same passages, right? reading the same text. Nobody's reading any different text, but coming to completely different conclusions based on that. Yep. That's what we're talking about, right? Yeah. So what we look at is we look at this verse and we say, Paul doesn't allow any wiggle room here. He says that men crucified the Lord of glory. He doesn't say they crucified Jesus who was previous to this, the Lord of glory, and then came in that later. No, it's just it's kind of there in the text, right? Mm-hmm. You have to wrestle with what Paul actually says. He just says the Lord of glory is crucified. So what we do with that, classic Christology would say, what we see here are the two natures in one person. There wasn't two people crucified. One was Jesus the man, the other was somehow the Lord of glory. No, there was one man, Jesus, who was crucified, and that crucifixion, which killed the man, Jesus, included the Lord of glory. So what do we do with that? We now have a Jesus who is man and God. Mm-hmm. And that's how classic Christology approaches the verse. I say, 
I don't know how to explain this, but the verse clearly teaches that this man, Jesus, was God. I, I mentioned before the limitations of language and communication. We also have a limitation of our own reason Yes, in this. Very much so. And, and that we, we can't reconcile, okay, how does this actually work? Which means we can't go to the other extreme and say, well, look, if I can't reason it out and have it make sense, it's not true. Right. So which, then go... Which is something we find people doing nowadays. So now go to Acts 20, verse 28. So Acts, which is really the second volume of St. Luke's work, right? The first volume is his gospel, mm-hmm. which is the third gospel of the New Testament. And then um, they put John in there after Luke because it went the four Gospels together. But then Acts is really the second volume of Luke. So yeah. Acts is written by Luke, as it says in the very beginning of the book. Um, and so it records, basically Acts is laid out. It, the most easiest, the easiest way to look at it is you have the work of the church in Jerusalem and Peter. That's kind of the first part of the book of Acts. And then you have the work of Paul. Right, mm-hmm. leading up into his imprisonment, and then he doesn't die in the end. Because Luke's he, hanging out with Peter for the first half, and then he's like, hey, here's this Paul guy. I'm going to go on missionary journeys with him. Right. So there we go. Let's that go. seems to be what happens in the book of Acts. So anyway, you're reading the book of Acts, and as you come to ver- chapter 20, Paul is saying goodbye to some pastors that he um, kind of took care of and, and helped and taught in Ephesus. So he's saying goodbye to them, and listen to what he says in verse 28 of chapter 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Overseer means pastor. Listen to this. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Yeah. (laughs) Now God's bleeding. Yeah, now God has (laughs) blood. And again, what do you do with this? God can't have blood. God doesn't have a body. Yeah. I mean... In John, we learn that God is spirit. In John 4, God is spirit. It's a classic text to teach that God doesn't have a body. (laughs) And now that that God is bleeding. Yeah. So what do we do with this? Well, whenever you read words about purchasing or redeeming or buying, those are classic words to describe the crucifixion of Jesus, right? So Mm -hmm. it's very clear from the book of Acts and from other texts of Paul, that Paul is talking about the death and resurrection of Christ here as the purchasing with his own blood. And he predicates that by saying that that's God who did that. And, and he didn't do it with some, someone else's blood. He did it with his own blood. So now we have, just like in 1 Corinthians 2, we have these terms that don't seem to belong together. God bleeding. God crucified the Lord of glory crucified, God shedding blood. See, now, welcome to Christology. <laughs> yeah. How do you get? How do you explain this? How do we understand these words and not just say Paul's just saying crazy, nonsensical stuff? The answer isn't actually being able to reason through and come to the conclusion. The answer is, well, the person of Jesus. Yeah. All of this is actually reconciled in him as a person, like this, this real individual that is there exists today ex- was there then I'm trying to think of words that aren't going to get me yeah, in exactly. trouble here exactly but it's as opposed to the answer isn't in making sure i understand the technicalities of the vocabulary used in scripture and have reason through them the answer is in jesus himself well and that's actually the look at thing. him it's like oh that's him and looking at him and seeing everything through him 
this makes sense. And Which this is, is even a weird thing. way to when say When you read it. this with a kid, like a child who believes in Christ, they'll be like, well, that's Jesus. What are you What are you freaking out about? Yeah, why is it's this so, so weird easy. to you? <laughs> this is so easy. Who's a Lord of glory to crucify? That's Jesus. And that's exactly the point. Yeah. That's, what, that's all the church is trying to do. We're trying to say, look, this passage, it might not make any sense to you logically. It not, may not make any sense to you in many ways. But the New Testament is clear that this passage is simply confessing the truth of who Christ is. And this is the other thing we didn't get to yet, but we need to get to before we close, is that the reason Christ is confessed this way is because that's how God saves us. Yeah. This person of Jesus, one person, two natures, true God, true man, Lord of glory crucified, God shedding his blood, the risen Christ be declared to be the Son of God, all of these things. Why? Because God did this. He sent his son, Jesus. He gave his son, Jesus, because he loves you and he wants to save you. And this is the action that he took to make it happen. And this is why Christology and why this is such a critical topic for us to cover, why we want to cover it. Because if you get these different things wrong or you mm-hmm. miss them, you end up with the Jesus who hasn't actually accomplished the work he was sent to do. Changing these characteristics around his humanity, his divinity, how those work together. And we'll talk about the, yeah. the attributes and right. how they communicate to each other or don't communicate, all that kind of stuff. Changing these things, missing them, getting them wrong, actually gives you a Jesus who wasn't able to die on the cross for your sins, who wasn't able to pay the price, who wasn't able to rise again from the dead, and who didn't ascend into heaven and who doesn't currently sit at the right hand of God the Father, who doesn't forgive your sins right. when you receive his body and blood, who isn't connected to you in baptism when, when you're joined with his death and resurrection in baptism, you get a Jesus who doesn't actually do those things, who isn't there acting and working in all of those ways. So that's why this is this actually matters. And right. one of the reasons, I, one of the ways I approach this is I just say, well, which Jesus are we talking about? Yeah. Just to make the point that we can actually be talking about a different Jesus when you tweak these things that seem to be, oh, this is just a deep theological conversation. Who really cares? Okay, yes, when we're talking about the faith like a child. Because my four-year-old can hear this and she's like, yeah, faith like a child. That's Jesus, like you said. Yep. At the same time, as an adult, I'm supposed to grow in my faith and grow in my understanding of who Christ is and what he's done. And if I get these things wrong, I actually grow in the wrong direction. Right. And the other thing is, and and this is something that that I really love about um, some of the writers on Christology, is most of the guys who do Christology will at some point stop and say, hey guys, just in case you're wondering, if if you follow me down this rabbit trail, you will fall on your knees before a holy God Mm. and rejoice in the gift that he has given you in your Savior Jesus. This Christology leads you to the cross. It leads you to repentance. It leads you to rejoicing in salvation by grace through faith because of what Christ has done. The end of all of the discussions about Christology is all glory and praise and honor goes to Jesus Christ. And the amazing news that we are saved by a God who is grace on sinners like me. 
Yep. I mean, that's that's the goal of Christology, <laughs> right? And then the cooler thing than just rejoicing is for me is I get to walk out and say to my neighbor, my friend, my spouse, my children, hey, this, this is God is for you. Yeah, this is for you. Yeah, that's the, really the goal in all of this. And that's the crucial conversation. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks.